Welcome to Managing Marketing, and today I'm with Jane Carra, who's the author, novelist, lecturer, mentor, social commentator, columnist, workshop facilitator, speaker, broadcaster, and in her own words, a jumped up award-winning copywriter and Walkley Award recipient. Welcome, Jane. (laughs) Thanks, Darren. That is such a mouthful and such a testament to the fact that you are clearly a person that just has amazing curiosity. (laughs) Yeah, I think I do. I also have a very low boredom threshold. (laughs) I have to be doing something different all the time. Yeah, it's it's such an amazing body of work um, and such a diverse range of channels in a way, communication channels. But what is it that you really love? I mean, what is it that you love most doing? I think um, if words have always been my stock in trade. That's what I'm best at using. Um, in fact, when I was at school, I mean, I was absolutely appalling at maths. Uh, I was a very average student in every way, except at English. I was really good at English. So I was lucky. I was a specialist from an early age, not a generalist. I right. knew what I could do, and it was words. And there wasn't much use wasting time or anything else because I couldn't do any of those other things. And um, the other thing that I'm really interested in, completely obsessively interested in, is people. Um, I'm not interested in machines. I'm not interested in technology. I'm not interested in that kind of thing. I'm really interested in people. What makes them tick? Why do they do what they do? Why do they behave the way they behave? What is going on really on a deep level that motivates us all? I'm always digging away and trying to nut out what's really going on here. I don't like skating along the surface. I like I like to... Get deep under yeah, the skin. Yeah, under the skin. And, and because I... I, I I basically believe that people are are originally good. I'm the opposite of a Christian who believes in original sin and that people are we need to repent sinful <laughs> and we need to repent. My view is the exact opposite. I think that people are originally uh, good and um, basically motivated well and uh, want to live cooperatively in the world and that things happen to them as they grow up through this world that can thwart and warp that, bring mm-hmm. out the worst of them or bring out the best of them. And most of us get a little bit of both of those. The people who go horribly wrong get too much of the stuff that brings out the worst in them. People who end up being really exceptional probably get way more of, this, of, the, of the influences that bring out the best in them. But I'm always interested about people. So one of the things I've noticed about generally about people that are interested in people is that almost invariably there's an incredible ability for empathy. I think empathy is the most important thing on the planet really. Um, I often notice, and this is indicative of my own biases, so take it from that perspective, that the right in, uh, by which I mean the kind of increasingly hard right, not not your old-fashioned conservative necessarily, but you you're very the alt right or the yeah, new right authoritarian or the, right yeah. or whatever. They they love to be in judgment. They have they like they're very hard on people. You know the poor made their own bed. You know they mm-hmm. they can always find the fault in the person who is suffering. 
And it seems to me that quite often those who are on the soft left, not the hard left, who I see as being quite close to the hard right, actually operate more in a compassionate universe. Mm. They're always looking for, you know, even in the worst of people, what went wrong for them. You know, um, I have enormous admiration um, for people who work with those that the world despises. Um, Mm. I, I, I think that's, you know... Very important, very admirable, and is all about empathy. It's all about saying in the end, there but for the grace of God go I. And I suppose at the basis of my own philosophy is the only bit of Christianity I've ever thought made a whole lot of sense, which is the bit about hating the sin but loving the sinner so that you can separate the behaviour from the person. It's, it's so funny you said that because while you were saying it, I was thinking, isn't that ironic? Because at the very core of the teachings of Jesus Christ, mm. the story of Jesus mm. Christ, is the idea of being there for the most wretched, the most downtrodden, yes. and yet the way religion was interpreted, you know, and, and I read a great book years ago, How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious, because what it said <laughs> is that the very core of Christianity is an amazing set of values. It's just that the uh, human interpretation has made it about control and about uh, guilt, using guilt shame. to control and shame to control people. Yeah. Amazing, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, all of that. And so, yeah, I'm not remotely religious. I'm a third-generation atheist, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do still have this sense always of pity for even the very worst Um and I think it is that, and it is an empathy. Um, and I, when I was younger, certainly had my own struggles with um, a mental illness and an anxiety neurosis. And I think those kinds of experiences uh, make you realise that none of us have got it all together, <laughs> and that we're, you know, we none of us understand our own motivations at all, let alone fully. And therefore, to stand in judgment is to an extent to be foolish. Well, you know, um, it is incredibly easy for someone that is interested in people to turn the lens on themselves and become almost completely obsessed in trying to understand yourself and the motivations. And often you learn the best lessons about humanity by being aware of your interpretation of other people. That's true, but I do think that to know yourself is very important. Mm. To understand your but own... But not to the point where you're obsessed about well, it. Well, no, no, I mean, narcissism is a <laughs> waste of time. I mean, when we have a narcissist in charge of the US at the moment, and yeah. it's terrifying. No, na- but narcissism is the opposite of understanding yourself. Narcissism yeah. is living a pretense. I always think of Donald Trump, who I think is the exemplar narcissist of our time, as being most like the Wizard of Oz. You know, he's behind the curtain. He's really a wizard little man with great big, you know, making a big fuss, and, and he doesn't understand himself at all. He has no self-awareness at all. There's a difference between self-awareness, knowing yourself, knowing your own weaknesses, being prepared when someone challenges you about something to think, oh, actually they're right, that does reveal more about me than it does about them. What are, What's going on in me that I've had that kind of reaction? That's a completely different way of uh, being interested in yourself than being interested in just your ego. Mm. 
Um, in a yeah, world, being yeah. self-aware yeah. is certainly healthy yeah. because then, you know, in a way you are you start to understand your biases. You start to understand the framing that you bring to the world, either because of your upbringing or whatever, you know, the, or the values that you've picked up from the society you live in. It's also where empathy starts because if you're self-aware, you recognise your own um, mistakes, foibles, weaknesses, sins, you know, um, but also your strengths. Uh, yeah, yes. I mean, I, I always think it's important to get the balance right because sometimes we focus too much on our uh, our weaknesses. I often think, though, see, this may be a difference between male culture and female culture. And you notice I say culture, not men and women, mm. male culture yeah. and female culture, is that I think women have an enormous... We bond through our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses. Mm-hmm. We bond with one another by... Um, talking about what we get wrong. Um, mm. And I've noticed that men tend to bond more over their successes well, we got and right. their strengths and <laughs> what they got right. And um, so it's kind of an interesting thing to me because I'm always more comfortable with the weakness side of the equation. But at the same time, I do think that your greatest strength is also always your greatest weakness, that they are actually the same thing. Um, just one of them um, is, a, is a strength when it's in the you use it in the right situation mm. with the right motivation and the right intent, but it can be a terrible weakness. So not even two opposite. sides of the same coin, as some people would say, but actually one attribute that, depending on how it's framed, yeah. can be a strength and a weakness. And a weakness. Almost everything can be both positive and negative, and so... They're almost the same thing. And for example, I'm a, I'm an expressive person. I like to talk. I'm good with words. Um, that is often a strength of mine. But sometimes it can be a real weakness of mine as well. So yeah, it just depends on where it is. And like determination and stubbornness. Exactly. You know? Yeah. All In those things. Interesting. Very interesting. Now. Obviously, so your love is words and using words and communicating. What's your passion? Really, what's the thing that that drives you to do the things that you do? Um, I think a lot of it is empathy, actually. Um, But I think, yeah, I have a a passionate belief in the right of everyone to um, participate as fully as they can and contribute as much as they are able to. And therefore, and I think I was brought up to uh, have that uh, view. I was brought up to understand that I was an extremely privileged person from a very educated um, background. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was brought up to believe that my duty, therefore, it was a duty, was to expand that privilege to others as much as possible. That the only worthwhile reason to have privilege was to increase the number of people who can have privilege. Mm. Um, I often watch the privilege, particularly these days, doing the exact opposite. Mm. They seem to want to um, uh, exclude Well, uh, build a fortress. You yeah. Know? It, it's a bit like that idea of, you know, plenty in that you generate more by actually sharing more. And yet there's this incredible sense that you get from the world now that those that have it almost feel like it's a limited resource so they need to protect it from everyone else. They have to hang on to it. And, you know, I have had not quite been called a class traitor, but I have <laughs> I have certainly had some indications from some people who disagree with me that they feel that it is bizarre that a 
you know, relatively privileged white woman living on the North Shore should argue for disadvantaged students in public schools and uh, particularly that. That seems to really annoy people. Um, and I'm often told, Yo, you know, you live in the leafy, leafy North Shore, you know, blah, 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 you're just slumming and virtue signalling. And I always say to them, so you're arguing that the only people who should advocate for the poor and disadvantaged have to be poor and disadvantaged themselves, which is a really neat way of making sure that nobody advocates for the poor and disadvantaged because people who are poor and disadvantaged are too busy bloody surviving mm. to be able to um, take up cudgels. Some of them do, and I take my hat off to them, but by and large it's hard. And also they're poor and disadvantaged because they haven't been able to advocate um you know, mm. effectively. And so that is a neat way of keeping them forever in that position. Because there is a underlying um, delusion that actually society is a level playing yes. field. That somehow that if you don't make the most of it... It's all your own fault. But, and, and I have to say, because, you know, I came from an incredibly working-class background. You know, we went a long, a long time in childhood without anything, you know, mm. and got... But we're great parents that gave everything. And the lesson that they taught me and my brother was to make the most mm. of every opportunity. And that's wonderful, but that means in a way you were privileged because you had really good parenting. Yeah, no, no, and I completely get yeah. that. But and a lot of a, people don't. But on the same superficial measures that people look at you and say, oh, leafy suburb, privileged background, why are you doing this? There's people that look at me and go, oh, you've achieved all these things, but they don't know what you know, the background that I've come from and the fact that I've made the most of every opportunity. Yeah. But I also appreciate all of the people that I grew up with that didn't necessarily either have the same opportunities or the same ability to be able to position themselves in that place. Because I think there is a certain amount of luck of in, the in, in the presenting of those opportunities. I think that's exactly right. I, I get very annoyed with the libertarians because the libertarians, I think, are the prime prime movers of the it's a level playing field everything you get or don't get is entirely your own fault which is a really neat and convenient way for people who've been fortunate to justify their own good fortune i earned this really then how come so many of you are white privileged mm. ex-private school men if you earned it yeah. um maybe there's a, a friend of mine calls them male pale, pale and stale, stale which yeah. i love yeah. yeah it's very good so yeah i i'm i'm driven by the view that we don't have a level playing field and that i have benefited from that lack of level playing field unfairly mm. and therefore it is my job to try to make the playing field more level mm. or, or at least create the opportunities for as many people as possible correct to see that through one of the things that, uh, for me, was creativity. And, you know, I love the idea that all human beings have the capacity to be creative. Oh, absolutely they do. Look at any small child. Yeah. But that there is something about the process of growing up or being educated, and I think, you know, we'll get, we'll get on to that, mm. that actually takes away from people or suppresses it the most fundamental in a way, joy that you can have as a human being, and that is to be creative. Well, as soon as we start deciding that our children have to be little achievement machines, they've got to live up to certain benchmarks, you know, they've got to pass certain... Even this thing of what age they ought to walk, what age they ought to talk, what you know, suddenly we're setting them up 
not to be themselves, but to tick a box, to pass a marker. Um, and we continue that throughout their life. And of course, we are also obsessed, I think, with compliance. Australia is particularly obsessed with it. We used to call it obedience. That's not a very fashionable word now, so we call it compliance instead. But it means the same thing. Um, and we're very into control, particularly yeah. children and young people. And um, in the 70s, there was when I was at school, there was a bit of a fashion for... Uh, a much more open and free and expressive and creativity mm. was more emphasised. And I actually blossomed under that. Mm. But we've gone very hard the other way now. Mm. And um, I, I worry that we are turning out. Um, and I saw it when I, were, I taught advertising crea creative at uh, University of Western Sydney. I would see in certain cultures in particular... Um, very rigid ways of approaching things so that I would give them a brief and the students would say to me, oh, do you want margins? I go, I don't give a shit if you present it to me scribbled on the back of an envelope. If it's a really good idea, yeah. I'll be really happy with it. The presentation is not the point here. It's the substance of your thinking that I'm really interested in. Well, they just got... And a lot of them would bring me just the brief I'd given them kind of rework... Re worked and I'd say why would a client pay you a whole lot of money just to represent what they've already given you yeah. you've got to add something something different something new something unusual something out of the box something I've never seen before surprise me shock me horrify me mm. you know make me laugh I don't care move me make me and I yeah. said moving me means take me from one emotional state to another emotional state that's what move me means so if I go from you know a little bit bored to shocked yeah. you've done your job so it's the culture of this compliance or, or of, you know... Obey the rules. Yeah, which means that they want frameworks. They, they want to operate in guidelines. I was really um, surprised and delighted when I saw an interview with Jack Ma, you know, the um, founder of um, uh, Alibaba and, and, mm -hmm. uh, in China make, ha, making a speech where he said the Chinese education system has been knowledge-based, where we're spending years and years getting our students to cram as much knowledge into their heads as possible. But he said the era of knowledge is over because it's all available to you. Hit Google. There yep. it is. There it is. And that the Chinese education system has to change to encourage creativity, to encourage problem solving, yeah. to encourage lateral thinking. This is one of the most successful financially and, and from a business perspective, uh, uh, business leaders in China telling his own government that they need to tear up thousands of years of educational philosophy and catch up with the 21st century. Unfortunately, we're doing the opposite of that. We're actually throwing away what was a very creative and um, innovative education system and turning it into a much more inspired delay. You know, thou mm. shalt do the net plan in year one, year three, year five. Well, especially year um, year uh, standardised testing. Standardised testing. And, and testing standardised results. And, yeah. yeah, standardised kids. It's just a really bad idea and it's not the right thing for the kind of era we're going into. Mm. Um, but fortunately, one thing I did also notice at UWS was there is a streak of larrikinism in mm. Australians, which is still there, particularly perhaps at the University of Western Sydney, which has got kids that wouldn't get into a uni anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Off, I think 75% of the students um, are the first ever in their family to go to university, which is a fantastic yeah. um, achievement. Well, it's an opportunity. It, it, yeah. it's, it's a levelling of the playing field. Yeah. And so a lot of them weren't your typical studious, 
you know, Sydney Uni, PhD, aiming for a PhD eventually kind of students or a, for a job in a... Or living up to expectations. Living up to somebody else's idea of yeah. what their life should be like. And I found that often the Larrikin um, kids, both boys and girls, would be the ones who did the best job. And it was because they kept a little bit of subversion. They kept a little bit of their, why should I do it the way you say? Mm. That's what creativity lives in, that question. Creativity does not live in, um, oh, master, tell me the right thing to, mm. way to do things. No. You've got to do it like this. Creativity lies in rebellion and subversion. It lies in the person with that little niggle that challenges authority all the time, challenges um, what's said is the right thing to do and the right way to do things. Yeah, pushing boundaries, looking for new ways of um, almost explaining the world or giving us new perspectives of the world. But also it can be it can be a slightly aggressive. Like it's, it's mm. no, I'm not going to do it your way. And the Larrikin kids had that and they would come in with something, um, you know, surprising, funny, uh, angry, you know, whatever. It had an emotion in it. Mm. And I'd respond and give them a good mark. And I remember a few of them coming up to me at the end of the course and saying to me, hey, thanks for the great mark. You know, that's the first time I've gotten more than a C for anything. <laughs> yeah, encouraging them. Because, well, I said, well, your thinking yeah. is fresh. Um, you may not get high marks in the more academic subjects because they don't want you to be fresh thinking. But let me tell you, you think in a fresh way. This is a good thing. So... We've both had careers in advertising, mm. and advertising is certainly one of the areas that you know, creativity mm. is put into a commercial context. Mm. What, what do you think of the state of the creative industry today? Well, fortunately, I'm not in it anymore. Yeah. And I'm so you're an external thing. observer? Yeah. I... Look, it doesn't look to me like it's doing particularly well. And I, I, that doesn't mean it won't recover, but I think like all the creative industries at the moment, except interestingly enough, drama, which I think is actually really going from strength to strength with the Netflix and mm. the growth in that kind of thing. But everything else, and I think also actually uh, books and novels are really, and um, uh, long form journalism is, is actually pretty terrific, but almost again for a subversive rebellious reason, they've got a lot to analyse and protest against. But I think that commercial creativity is very poor. Mm. Um, and I think it's because we've fallen in love with the hammer and the nail rather than the house that we're meant to be building. It has always been my experience that people get distracted by bright, shiny objects. So they think that the internet or social media or a podcast or um, some new innovative uh, method of delivery is the creative idea. And it never is. It's always the content. That mm. is the creative part, always. Yep. And I, my judgment of what I see of the majority of um, commercial creativity at the moment is that we, we are... I mean, you can see how the content has been relegated in that once upon a time, my title would have been copywriter or writer. Mm-hmm. Now it would be content creator. Yes. <laughs> well, that gives you an idea of where the status of those people who know how to connect with others have fallen to. And I think that's a real problem and I think we can see it in a lot of the um, dull, old-fashioned, 
um, boring messages that um, I get exposed to all the time. Okay, I just want to pick up on something there, Jane, which is you started off comparing, you know, the other creative industries mm. and how they're thriving. Mm. Now, I'm wondering, and, and it's a hypothesis, that it's because in many ways technology has actually made it more uh, accessible mm. to create films to write online, to publish your thoughts yeah. online. And so what we're actually getting is an increased diversity. This extra accessibility oh, is okay. actually allowing more voices and more perspectives to be heard and therefore you know, participate in this than we actually see in commercial creativity. Because you know, one of the things the industry has almost flagged for itself is the lack of diversity within mm. the advertising marketing area. I think unfortunately too, advertising is stuck in an old paradigm. The old paradigm was you came up with the idea and somebody else had to approve it and pay for it. Mm -hmm. And that's still what happens in advertising. Yeah. And unfortunately that always had a negative effect on creativity but occasionally you could slip one through to the keeper. As you absolutely correctly say, the, the, the whole kind of shattering of the media landscape has led to the exact opposite happening in other forms where, you know, it's been how I've managed to completely diversify my career by taking my core skill of writing and speaking and uh, communicating and putting them out there without necessarily having to get anyone to approve or accept what I wanted to say. I, my view is that Things like feminism have come roaring back onto the agenda because when I was first, you know, trying to get articles up about uh, women and what they were doing and how they felt about the world, I would often get almost always male editors who'd say to me, oh, no, we did women last month. As if, you know, <laughs> and no one's interested. interested. <laughs> you know, who cares about them? We've seen that before. Yeah, it's yeah. old news. And um, now, the, so when the um, social media came along, women just started putting their stuff out there and they were the people whose voices really impacted and they, they went round the gatekeepers. Same with LGBTQI people. I mean, who could possibly have believed, mm. even five years ago, that Ireland would legislate for gay marriage and also repeal their anti-abortion legislation? Mm. That is revolutionary and it is because when people stopped having to get approval particularly people in out-groups, to get their voices heard, the richness of the diversity of voices out there created an explosion of creativity. Well, it, it, the technology actually makes it so much more accessible for people. You know, yeah. the barrier of not having money. You know, almost anyone that can get a uh, access yeah. to any sort of internet. That's why the women can, in India are holding them to account over those rapes. Yeah, because they have it gives they can people get in voices. Touch with one another. More importantly, the whole business models change because you don't need to generate a lot of money out of it to actually find your audience. That it's amazing that you know you can have a huge fragmentation of perspectives. You don't have the mainstream anymore no. because the mainstream is a collection of a whole lot of diverse ideas and diverse thoughts and diverse opinions. Which it always was, but now we can see it fully. Yeah. And I also think that you're ab you've absolutely hit on something there about you can you know there are all these different voices, but also if you come up with something with a message, and we do see this still, thank goodness, where there's a commercial or there's a, 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 a 
Facebook video, for goodness sake, doesn't matter what it is, that gets the emotion right, that mm. doesn't worry about all the rational attributes, all that core shit that we always used to go on about, and I used to think this is not the point. Mm. Um, when it gets the emotion right, suddenly all that diversity coalesces mm. because we're actually much more the same than we're different. Yes. We, we police our differences, but actually we're so similar. And everyone knows what it is to feel pain. Everyone knows what it is to feel joy or to be surprised. When you go to a film, a blockbuster comedy, people don't laugh according to their demographics or their mm. socioeconomic no, status. Yeah. They all laugh at the same moment at the same joke because we're all human. Mm. And I think that the really interesting thing about social media is it has this shattering and coalescing effect mm. at the same time. And that's what's so incredibly powerful about it. Yeah, you know, I love the fact that when something works, it works. But the other thing is because of the ease, you know, the, the ability to access it and the less in you know, financial or material investment, mm -hmm. you can also, as a true creative human being, just do lots of things. Yes. You know, one of the things that worries me about advertising is the amount of time that is spent trying to make it right. And often in the process of making it right, and I do in quotations, yeah. what does that actually mean? I mean, often in the process of making it right, we actually get it hopelessly wrong, wrong because we lose all of the humanity, all of the uniqueness that actually would make it... Uh, um, uh, create a response in, in a person. Yeah. If a person once explained to me that if a butterfly lands on your hand and you try to grab it, you'll kill it. Yeah. You just hold your hand open and still and let the butterfly sit there. And I used to think that when I'd write a script for an ad and I know it was a really good script. And then the client, the planner, the researchers, they'd all come along and they'd want me to, they'd want to grab this butterfly and they'd want to try to improve it. Mm. And you, it wasn't perfect. Nothing's perfect, but if it was 80 to 85% there, it was probably going to do a bloody good job if you just let it go. But they couldn't bear it. They, in their desire to make it 100%, they made it nothing. Mm. They killed it. Um, and they because they lost the spontaneity. I remember once Les Gock, um, who used to run mm. the Song Zoo, Song Zoo yeah. telling me that they could now, this is a long time ago, it'd be in the 90s, he said, we can now make music that's perfect that doesn't have any mistakes or anything like that. And he said, but the problem is when we do it, nobody wants to listen to it because it's cold and inhuman. So now we do music, we dial in that the imperfections, the yeah. imperfections, because that's what people like. Yeah, rather than a drum machine, they use drum sampling of a real drummer no, because exactly. it's just slightly well, off. Not, yeah. It's slightly not right. But it's a bit like the revival of vinyl. Yes. Know, it's because we've got digital recordings that don't have the crackle, but people actually like the warmth and the crackle that you get from a vinyl record. Warmth is, I think, it goes alongside empathy. It is the most important thing in life. And warmth is always about that moment of recognition of our shared um, foibles, vulnerability mm. and fragility. That's always the moment where we, we relax and we go... Oh, yes. Well, I, there you go again with weakness, Jane. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. I'm, oh, in, I'm in love. No, I love, I love faults, mistakes, weaknesses, failures. They're the interesting parts of life. I like problems. I often say to my students, look, never let anyone say to you, oh, no, this ad's too negative. Just realise you're dealing with an idiot. Because we are hardwired to pay attention to problems mm. for perfectly obvious reasons. They are, that's how you survive. 
Yeah. You have to solve problems to survive. We're not interested in solutions. We don't need to spend energy on solutions. Look, you've just made me completely realise an article that I read only recently that said uh, success stories are basically propaganda. Yeah, and they're boring and they're not motivating. They're the opposite of motivating. And yet so much of society from a mainstream media point of view is about, you know, how many times have we heard about the overnight success when the person spent years and years struggling, but that just disappears. Well, and they're the overnight success. Or the person that, you know, uh, this success happened in business. What do they call them? Unicorns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, every investor's looking for the next billion-dollar unicorn and well, things every like that. Stupid, every stupid investor is looking for it. If something goes up real quick, let me promise you it'll come down real quick. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 I am a bit of a maverick about a lot of the business speak. For example, that pernicious term continuous improvement which I just think is nonsensical and infantile because nothing in life continuously improves and anyone who's alive with their eyes open ought to realize that it's just not the way life is after all there is only one final conclusion to life for all of us and that is to die and (laughs) that is not an improvement but that's the end so it's just it's an infantile measure to say that you know we have to go through life continuously improving And far from inspiring people to try harder, it actually makes them feel exhausted and hopeless. I'm always going into conferences to give speeches and my motivation is I want the audience to come out feeling better about themselves and what they do than when they went in, not worse. And I do that by basically telling them that they're, they're doing a fine job, not perfect. I say to them, you're not amazing, you're not fabulous, none of us are. Even those people who get up in front of you and say, I'm fabulous and amazing and you can be too. No, they're not fabulous and amazing. None of us are. So let's just drop that, relax and be ourselves in all our warped, um, uh, pathetic, flawed flawed reality. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't it funny? Because when you reach that level of comfort, suddenly so many more opportunities open up because you're no longer there with this filter of saying, oh, I can't do that and I shouldn't do that. And you just open yourself to, okay, we'll give it a go. I'll give it a bell. I often, I, people say to me, I remember many years ago when I was on Gruen and Will Anderson said to me, just before we were due to go on and film an episode, he said to me, it was almost in an accusatory tone, you're not nervous. I said, no, I'm not. And he said, well, how... How come? And I said, well, I'll go on and I've done a bit of preparation. You know, you've told me a bit about what we're going to be talking about. It's the business I've been in for about 30-odd years. Um, You'll ask me questions. I'll give the best answer that I have. Um, You'll either like me or the audience will like me or you won't. And if you don't like me, you won't ask me back. That's the worst thing that's going to happen. Yeah. And why would I be nervous? I'm not trying to be the best on the panel. I'm not trying to be the most brilliant. I gave that up a long time ago. And I think one of the problems for advertising is it is obsessed with who's the best, who's the greatest, who's the hottest. And unfortunately, that's just a false measure. Mm. And I think it actually restricts creativity because it makes people aim for false gods, which is to be the hottest, the best, the greatest, the most creative. And actually, that's not your job. Well, it also uh, limits the way people within the industry interpret what is creative and what isn't you know and we see this time and time again especially in asia you know we do a lot of business in asia um that the creative people 
in Asia, like Japan and China, uh, Thailand, South Korea, Thailand, yeah, but they feel that they they will only ever get recognised in creative awards if they do what the Westerners do. That they that somehow their ideas aren't good enough because they're not like the let's say the English school or the American school of the clever headline or the twist of the idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've seen the 10 sort of basic ideas that you should be aiming for to be creative. Well, and I think I very much in my era suffered from the same feeling as a woman because I would often be the only woman who was on a, an awards panel, you know, an award jury. And ads would come up that I really got and they were aimed at women and they were written by women and they were absolutely right. And I'd put the red dot on it and I'd say to the guys, this is terrific. They'd go, I don't get it. And I'd say, yeah, it's not aimed at you. You're not the audience. You're not the audience. And supposedly you're getting the big bucks yeah, and, to actually and understand your audience. Like 80% of ads are aimed at this particular audience that you don't get. And uh, believe me when I tell you, this is a really good nut. I couldn't get them through. And so what would happen to women, and I'm sure this is what happens to creators from different ethnic backgrounds as well, is that you get on this track where you can never get ahead because you can't win awards, which is the only way you get ahead. And because you're writing ads that are absolutely right for your audience and are absolutely expressing something that those narrow schools of what is regarded as hot and creative Mm. don't get, and it's the same for women uh, authors of books and women filmmakers and women directors and people from different cultures as well they get marginalized because their voice isn't the same and their uh, way of looking at the world isn't the same as the sort of dominant still dominant group and dominant way of seeing the world now there's nothing wrong with the way the dominant group sees the world it wants to write ads it's fine but it's not the only way and it gets very restrictive when it's seen as not as the only or at least the best way. Well, e- even worse from my perspective is that there is then this uh, unconscious but very deliberate uh, uh, pressure on people. Because, yeah, I had this argument with a couple of award organisers and they said, oh, we've got judges from many different cultures, except that all of the judges were selected on their um, ability to win awards primarily in the West. So even though they'd come from a different culture that wasn't the US... They'd adapted. They'd adapted to the technique to win the award, to get the recognition, so that they were now judges on panels that were judging with the same criteria that they'd adapted to. So it became self-perpetuating. And it's shrunk. So there's nothing new. Because everyone else is trying to just find a, a different way of doing the same thing, rather than acknowledging, you know what, there are an infinite array of ways of moving someone or right. influencing them or you know, getting, you know, getting them to engage in something other than this particular the technique. The witty headline. And that technique's been around since the 60s. I oh, know. You know, the, the think small, and yeah. you know, the, which yeah. is still held up as the classic. Lemon. Yeah, and lemon, yeah. yeah. That juxta- clever just juxtaposition, but it's not the only way it's to not, communicate. It's not the only way. And um, I do think it's one of the reasons why advertising, which was in the 60s and 70s, and even to an extent when I was in it in the 80s, kind of booming and highly regarded and um, you know a really interesting way to work and a good way to earn a living and all that kind of stuff it's now it's lost its cloud it's lost its um, 
it's not important anymore. Mm. It's not even. It's only important to itself. Is what I basically mm. observe of the industry now. Because it was an era that generated a lot of people. You know, it attracted the sorts of talent, sixties, seventies, mm. even the eighties, that would then go on, having made a career or reputation, and go on and become amazing filmmakers. Be Faye Weldon or Salman Rushdie, yeah. or yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and writers and mm. filmmakers and, and photographers. And, yeah, you know, all of these people came out of uh, 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 Peter Carey came out of you know this this background. We're not necessarily seeing that. I mean, time will tell. But maybe that's where they've lost the plot. Yeah, I think it does feel like it's... it's. I mean, I, I remember going to a, a conference, this is a while ago, so it's probably moved on, about uh, new media... New media? How long are we going to call it new media, <laughs> I wonder? Um, and how to use it. And people getting up with case studies where, you know, they've done this amazing um, thing that got audiences really involved and they you know they, they sold 25 pairs of jeans and I remember thinking my god when I worked on Toyota if I wrote a campaign that didn't sell 10,000 10, cars <laughs> you know I was in deep shit I'd have to answer for it and now everybody's really impressed and the amount of effort and work and energy to actually get people to participate in some kind of treasure hunt yeah. which you did with apps and I thought oh this is so complicated why would anyone do it um See, there's your empathy coming back yeah. in, in droves, you're yeah. flooding out. Yeah. Why would you do this? Why it's, are we making it so hard for everyone? Right. Exactly. <laughs> because the one thing I understand about my life, and I'm, I understand about a lot of other people's, is life has become um, much more demanding. Everybody wants a piece of you all of the time. So the easier you can make the interaction between you and your customer, the more you're going to sell them, the harder and more complex you make it. People don't want to have a relationship with brands. They really, 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 really don't want to have a relationship with brands. Half the time they don't want to have a relationship with members of their family. Mm. Why would they want to have a relationship with, with a brand, fucking yeah. brand? And, and I, I want to say to people, get back in your box and know how big you really are because the definition of insanity is thinking you're more important than you really are. Mm. Jane, it's been fantastic. Thanks for making time. My pleasure. Um, one last question. Sure. What is next for you? Thank you.